Barbara, thank you. We're going to pray for that ministry in a moment. We thank you for your uh, volunteering there. And I know many other people volunteer with Tree of Life. And uh, you may not even know this, but when you give to Hamilton Baptist Church, you give to Tree of Life. And we're one of those partnering churches that supports this ministry. And we want to continue to do so in a greater degree as we attempt to be Christ to our neighbors. And so perhaps there's a place for you in that ministry. Well, this morning we're going to be in uh, Luke's Gospel, as you know, and we'll begin in chapter 1 and verse 26. You'll find that on page 855 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we'd love for you just to take that copy there in the Pew Rack as our gift to you. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. I do encourage you to have a Bible open this morning. Those verses will be on the screen in a moment, but we're just going to be working verse by verse through this text. And You'll be able to follow along and engage, I think, in God's Word um, more intimately if, if you follow along with the Scripture in front of you. So I encourage you to have that copy. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Hear now the Word of God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His father David, and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of His kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word in which we can now set our hearts upon that we can consider. We pray that you would help us. That we may gaze upon this beautiful text as we hear who Jesus is and what he has come to do. We pray that you would help us to rejoice in him. And we pray for this ministry that attempts to proclaim his kingdom through active loving of our neighbors. We pray for Tree of Life and ask that you would abound them in, in uh, fruitfulness and prosperity, Father, that their ministry would be powerful and, and impactful in the lives of many, that they would not simply feed uh, the hungry and clothe the naked, Father, but they would do it in the name of Jesus Christ, that those in our county would know that Christ has come not only to share his love, but to save sinners. And do this work through them, and even here today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On March 23rd in 1743, when Handel's Messiah was first performed in London, the King was present. 
They got to the point in the, the performance, the, the choir, to that hallelujah chorus where they sang, For the Lord God, the omnipotent reigneth. And the, the performance, the choir was so powerful on that day that the whole audience spontaneously, including the king, sprang to their feet and remained standing throughout the entire chorus. And since that time, for almost 300 years, it has been a custom to stand during that chorus whenever it is performed. Uh, a number of years ago, Leger and I uh, went to hear Handel's Messiah performed in Duke Chapel. And uh, it was a powerful and moving uh, time. And, and even there in Duke Chapel, with a uh, chapel filled with pagans, when we sang that, they sang the Hallelujah Chorus, everyone rose to their feet. This has been the custom for hundreds of years. But it had not, did not remain the custom for the British monarch. See, a hundred years later, when Queen Victoria just ascended to the throne, she too went to hear the Messiah. And yet her court advisors instructed her that she must not rise when all others stood during the Hallelujah Chorus. And so the choir exclaimed, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. For the Lord God, the Omnipotent, reigneth, and everyone rose to their feet in reverence Why Victoria remained seated, but with great difficulty. In fact, the chorus went on and continued to proclaim Him. King of kings, they sang. Lord of lords, they sang. And at this, Victoria could stay seated no longer and stood, did the queen, before her king of kings, the Lord of lords. I want to talk to you today about this king of kings, this Lord of lords. I want to speak to you about the amazing things that he had come into this world to do. The amazing man, the amazing God that he is. Last week in our study of the Gospel of Luke, we saw that God kind of broke this 400 year period of silence and inactivity. That God began to act again. And he sent his angel Gabriel to announce that, that this woman Elizabeth who could not get pregnant was about to be pregnant. And not just pregnant with any old son, but the son in which she would have would be a prophet of God who would prepare the way for the coming Savior. In the text before us this morning, we see that that same angel now informs Mary, who shouldn't be pregnant, is about to be, and that her son would be no prophet of God, but he would be the Savior himself, the King of Kings. And in this incredible conversation between the angel Gabriel and this, this peasant girl Mary, we, he unfolds to us God's plan. And I want to consider with you these three glorious truths of who our King of Kings is. And you see, first of all, that we see the meekness of Jesus here in the choices in which God has made the meekness of Jesus. Verse 26 tells us, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And so once again, we see the angel Gabriel on the move. Luke tells us a time marker. He says in the sixth month. That's most likely a reference to six months after Elizabeth conceived. You know, verse 24, it says, After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. And so he's, he's dating this moment from the time in which John was conceived. He's now six months in his mother's womb. And, and he comes, uh, the angel comes to this city of Galilee called Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is a city in the same way that, that maybe Berryville is a city or Hamilton is a city, right? Not much of a city. Uh, a nice place to live, but, but we, wouldn't, we wouldn't think of it as a city. To, so when he says city, don't think Washington, D.C. Or, or New York or even Jerusalem. 
This is, would be a kind of a tiny product town, a little rural town, maybe 200 people living in that town. Most of them will be poor, living in a home maybe 500 to 600 square feet big, about the size of your master bedroom probably and your bathroom combined. That's their entire home. And they would keep animals in their home, by the way. So they would section off some place for their animals. No running waters, you know. No electricity, you know. The only thing notable about Nazareth was that it was about the halfway point on the road between Tyre and Sidon. And so Nazareth is kind of like one of those towns you pull over on a road trip to get gas and everybody kind of stares at you because they know you're not from around there and you just kind of hurry on out, right? Because you don't want to stay there very long. That's Nazareth. Nothing particular about Nazareth at all. Poor, rural, mostly illiterate people. Very simple. Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? That's a rhetorical question. The answer, at least in his mind, is no, of course not. And so this is where the angel chooses to go. In fact, you even notice that, that Luke needs to tell us where Nazareth is. He says to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Galilee would be like the state. But you don't have to do this if you say Jerusalem. You don't say Jerusalem of Judea. Everybody knows where Judea is. You don't say Los Angeles of California, for instance. But if you talk about Nazareth, you have to tell them, where, well, where's Nazareth? Oh, it's in Galilee. It's in the north part of the nation of Israel. And so the angel Gabriel shows up in Nazareth. And he finds a house there. And in a house, he finds a girl who's alone, neck deep in wedding invitations, right? dreaming about in the coming months where she will marry her beloved, as we see in verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. You notice that Luke will highlight that Mary is a virgin. He'll do so again in verse 34. This will be very important as we understand who Jesus is, but it also speaks to Mary's character, doesn't it? She is following Jesus. She is a woman of purity and chastity. You also note about Mary, she's betrothed. Now, a betrothal is kind of like engagement in our day, but it's a much more formal. The marriage would actually be arranged by the parents, which I think all marriages probably should be. Um, but anyways, they, they were uh, engaged by their parents, and then there would be this formal witness, witnessed agreement, where they would come and people would come and witness the betrothal. And at this time, a dowry was paid by the, the girl's father to the other family. And, and at this time, she would technically, woman technically, be your wife. Though, though you wouldn't live with her, in order to break off the relationship, you would need a legal divorce or someone would have to die. In fact, if someone died, even during the betrothal period, the, for instance, if the man died, the woman would be considered a widow, even though they never um, consummated that betrothal. This would usually last about a year as the woman kind of proves her chastity and her purity and the man builds a home for them, usually addition on his father's home. And then at the end of the betrothal, you would have a marriage feast. It usually lasts a week long. And at the end of the week, the friend of the groom would hand the, the, the wife to the groom and then everybody would leave and then they would do what married people like to do. Right? And this is what Mary's about to engage in. You see, what we have in our mind, uh, I think probably we need some help here because we think of Mary, we think of this 30-year-old woman with beautiful hair, right? And she's got a white gown on that's embroidered and she's sitting on a golden throne with a golden crown over her head and a halo floating over that. And she's holding a beautiful baby and, and the baby also has a crown and the baby also is in this beautiful white gown. I'm telling you, Mary would not even recognize you. Who's that? Who's that supposed to be? 
Mary is rather a peasant girl. Mary would pull water from the well and collect firewood. Mary spends most of her life dirty. She would have a stool, not a crown, a throne. She would most likely be illiterate, though we'll see next week, God willing, she has an incredible memory of Scripture. She's probably somewhere between the ages of 12 and 14. She would be married off when she's 15. Now, some of you are trying to figure out, can you trust your 12-year-old with a cell phone? How about the Son of God? This is just a, a, a little girl. And there she's married to this guy named Joseph who has some pressure on him. His name means, may he have many sons. He is, according to verse 27, of the line of David. In other words, Joseph is royalty. He's he's an heir to David. And yet, there is no Jewish king on the throne in this day, as we saw last week. There's an Edomite on the throne, a man named Herod the Great. And so even though he's royalty, he's this 15, 16-year-old kind of broke kid. Doesn't have his license yet, maybe working a simple job as a, as a carpenter's apprentice, hoping to meet the girl of his dreams, which he does. It's Mary. But then again, it's a town of 200, so there's not a lot of options. Right? <laughs> and so Joseph and Mary are betrothed. And this is, so what Luke is here is just kind of setting out the background. We haven't even gotten to the story, right? He's just telling us the context. Luke does this all the time. He's going to tell you a story, but he sets it into its context. Well, the angel shows up and he finds Mary. And the first things he says to her in verse 28, greetings, O favored one, the, the Lord is with you. That word favors the word grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. And so the angel shows up and says, hello, Mary. You are the recipient of God's grace. You have received God's favor. In other words, the honor that is about to be paid to Mary is not something she deserved. It's grace. Now, there's other virgins in Israel at this time. God could appear to any of them, but He chose Mary. And the angel wants to establish the reason that I'm here is because God has decided to be gracious to you. I think this is probably helpful for Mary because parents like to boast about their children. Right? You know, have you seen my son throw a football? Or, or have you seen my daughter play an instrument? Well, what if your son's the son of God? Right? Well, have you seen my son walk on water? Right? I mean, so what, God, what God's doing is saying, wait a second, I want you to understand that this great honor that's about to be given to you, and it is great honor, unimaginable, is grace. It is God's grace upon you. God loves to lavish grace. It is by grace we are saved and loved and embraced by God. Mary is a recipient of grace, as are you, Christian, and as am I. In fact, I think I have good warrant to say to you this morning, Greetings, O favored ones. The Lord is with you. God has given you grace. God visited us with grace. That is the gospel. Christianity is a religion of grace, a religion in which God takes nobodies from nowhere and bestows upon them love and forgiveness and power on their behalf, which is why we delight to praise Him and to follow Him. You have received grace. In fact, he says, God is with you. You're going to need help. God's going to be with you. And so he lays this out before Mary. And Mary, as you can imagine, is somewhat troubled by this. This is difficult to understand. Of course, we consider the fear that angels bring. But you note uh, verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So this shook her a little bit, right? This is a 13-year-old girl who has never left town. And there's an angel in her house talking to her. She needs to sit down, right? There's a reason you're here. You didn't just drop by to say hello. And so she begins to ponder. What do you mean, 
I have received God's grace. What do you mean the Lord is with me? And I really appreciate this. I, lo- I love that. Verse 29, she began to discern or ponder what this is, what's going on. She wasn't hysterical. Right? Was, again, a 13-year-old girl that hasn't lived much life. I mean, you think she would say, Mom, there's an angel in the kitchen. Right? She's just thinking about this. She's not shallow or flighty, is she? Reflective, pondering. Well, the angel can see that she is disturbed. In verse 30, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So he he reiterates, you have literally received grace from God. I want to pause here for a moment and just talk to you about Mary. Um, it, it, it seems to me that, um, as you, you know, that, that the Roman Catholics have a different understanding of Mary. They kind of have a monopoly on Mary. And, and I just want to rescue Mary for a moment. If you're here this morning, you're Roman Catholic, we're delighted that you are here. But you do realize you are in a Baptist church. And, um, and so we're going to disagree. We, we do so lovingly. But uh, we want to be uh, chained to the Bible and we have concerns about what, th- what, what has been said about Mary. We, we actually think it's harmful. The Roman Catholics in the Latin Vulgate, which is a translation in the, I believe it's the 5th century, there's a bad uh, translation here, and, and every scholar realizes it, even Roman Catholic scholars. The Latin Vulgate reads in verse 28, greetings, um, and then just a, a wooden translation, one full of grace. And so the, the idea is that Mary is full of grace. In fact, Mary has so much grace, she has extra grace. And therefore, if you need grace, Mary can give you that grace. And you want grace, you go, therefore, to Mary. She is understood to be the co-mediator and co-redeemer along with Jesus. And this has been established church doctrine for the Roman Catholic Church for uh, many hundreds of years. For instance, Pope Leo Thirteenth in 1891 said, No one can approach Christ except through his mother. Pope Benedict XV in 1918 said Mary suffered with Christ and nearly died with him when he died. Thus, she may rightly be said to have redeemed the human race with Christ. Pope Pius XI in 1923, the Virgin of Sorrows, shared the work of redemption with Jesus Christ. The Vatican II Council, which I believe was in the 1940s, said Mary's intercession continues to win for us the gift of eternal salvation. And Pope John Paul II in 1997 said, having created man and female, the Lord also wants to place the new Eve beside the new Adam in redemption. Mary is the new Eve. We can therefore turn to the Blessed Virgin as the co-operator in redemption. And because there's this understanding that Mary is the co-redeemer, she has become an object of worship. And she has been uh, an object in which one who receives prayers... She sometimes even appears, according to the Roman Catholic Church. These are called Marian apparitions. Years ago, I was on vacation in Ireland, and we came to a shrine, the shrine of Our Lady of Knock. It is understood that on August 21st in 1879, two women from Knock were walking home in the rain, and who did they meet but none other than the Virgin Mary. And there um, at that shrine, a half a million pilgrims come every year. She also appeared in Lourdes where five million pilgrims come every year, ten million to the shrine at the Lady of Guadalupe, one million on May 13th will descend upon the sanctuary of the Lady of Fatima. And in case you don't want to travel abroad to go to one of these shrines, there is evidently a woman in Georgia who has regular contact with Mary. And once a year, 30,000 people show up on her front yard to hear what Mary has to say. 
And then, uh, just for um, to kind of draw this circle to a close, I am aware that Pope John Paul II in 1981 in his attempted assassination has said that Mary appeared while the bullet was striking him and guided the bullet so that it only injured him. Now, I would think if she's going to appear to guide the bullet, she would just, I would appreciate it at least, if she'd guide it so it missed me entirely. But evidently, it just so it just did not kill him. The, the Roman Catholic Church understands that Mary was born without sin, that she was perpetually a virgin, even though the Bible says she had five sons and at least two daughters, and that she was assumed into heaven, that is, she never died. Not one of those ideas is found anywhere remotely in Scripture. It's not found. It's all based upon church tradition. I would suggest to you this morning that no woman in Scripture is as blessed as Mary. There's no doubt in my mind about that. And yet I would equally, in fact, strongly suggest to you that there is one mediator between God and man. And it is not Mary. It is her son, Jesus Christ. There is one. In fact, in the book of Acts, you find Mary worshiping Jesus along with the church. She's never exalted in Scripture, not even mentioned much. She's not a dispenser of grace. Mary will give you nothing. She will just point you to her son if she could. But you do see that God certainly loves her. And God has indeed blessed her. In fact, I very much appreciate the fact that God chose her, a simple, humble, present girl who loves God. And in choosing Mary in this situation, I think we see the meekness of, the meekness of Christ. He didn't announce this birth to multitudes, but just to one person. He did not make this announcement in a metropolis, but just a little town. He did not announce it uh, to uh, people of influence. He did not announce it to people of wealth, just a woman of poverty. Did not announce it to the educated, but to the simple. Did not announce it in the temple, but a little house. Did not announce it to a woman, but to a girl whose whole life plan was to marry, give birth to numerous other poor kids, never travel more than a few miles, and then die. She was a nobody from nowhere. And I think that's significant that God chose her, that God picked her, someone, a little uh, uneducated peasant girl living in a small country town far from power. God had to choose someone. Why did he choose her? Well, Mary will sing about that very fact. God chose her because Jesus has come for the lowly, for the common, for the outcast, for the disregarded. He, he, he's showing us who He's coming for. It comes from people like Zachariah and Elizabeth, just a, a certain priest of 20,000, or like He came to Abraham, a, a common nomad who became the father of the Jewish nation, or Moses, a cast-off baby floating in a river and giving God's law, or David, a small shepherd boy of inconsequence who became the greatest king the world has ever known, or the apostles who are fishermen and tax collectors and are weak and doubting and ignorant and selfish. This is who Christ has come for. Jesus has come for sinners, the broken, the rebels, the failures, the hard-hearted, the stiff-necked, the nobodies from nowhere, the illiterate, the peasants, the poor, the outcasts, the marginalized, the weak. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, he would say. And so do not think that some type of privilege earns you a place with God. No, he said, I'm going to find someone, a nobody from nowhere. I'm going to start there to show the world the kind of God that I am, the kind of Savior that I am. He was humble enough to come through Mary. He is humble enough to be with you and to be with me. In fact, God wants to be with you, not because you're amazing. hate to break it to you, right? but because he's amazing. 
and He will transform you. You see the beauty of His meekness, but the angel doesn't stop there. He goes on and discusses His majesty. In fact, you note verse 31, He says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call His name Jesus. You want to know how you receive God's grace? You want to know what this is going to look like? Well, Mary, you're going to have a son who happens to be the Savior. That Jesus is the great Savior. In fact, His name means God saves. You notice the angel names Him for Mary. He'll actually explain the significance when he appears months later to Joseph saying that you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And this is who he is. He's a savior. He's come to save. He's come to live the obedient life that, that you should have lived but, but won't. And he's come to pay the price to die the death that you should have died but can't. This is what he has come to do. In fact, he goes on and, and says about this savior, he, verse 32, he will be great. Now, I kind of think this is an understatement, not to correct Gabriel at all, but to say that Jesus is great is like saying the sun is warm. Well, it's true, but it's, but you can say a lot more about it, can't you? I mean, he is extraordinary and splendid and magnificent and distinguished and powerful and eminent, right? We just throw around great all the time. Man, that was a great sandwich. Okay. But Jesus is more than that. He is, he is amazing. In fact, the angel said about John in verse 15, he would be great. In chapter 7, Jesus says, among those born of women, none is greater than John. So John's the greatest. And then Jesus shows up with John. And John says, listen, buddy, I can't even untie your sandals. So that's how great Jesus is above the greatest man ever. He is truly great. Through him, all creation was made. He is the perfect reflection of the Father. He will pay for the world's sin. You gather all the world's greatest thinkers from every place in this world, from every century that lived, you put them in a room with Jesus and they will shut their mouths and listen. There's nothing that Jesus cannot do 10,000 times greater than any one man that you admire. I think probably words are failing Gabriel at this time. So he just leaves it in the simple, listen Mary, he's going to be great, this Jesus who comes to save the world. Mary, you're going to give birth to the Savior. And not just the Savior. He is the eternal King. You notice... Verse 32, when he says he will be great, called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and in his kingdom there will be no end. He will have a throne, he will have a reign, he will have a kingdom. A king is about to be born. In fact, our brother John read to us the Davidic covenant, the promise to David that you would have a son that would sit upon the throne and rule forever. We already saw that Jesus, that da- uh, Joseph, excuse me, is in the lo- lineage of David. He's going to be Jesus' adopted son. We'll find out in chapter 3 that Mary is also of the lineage of David. And so God is keeping His promises. A thousand years ago, He promised that this would happen. And He promised it over and over and over again through prophet after prophet after prophet. The Son of David is coming. The Son of David is coming. Jeremiah 23 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king. Well, the people must have been thinking, well, where is this king? I mean, we keep hearing, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Where is he? Well, the angel shows up and says, Mary, all those times you heard in synagogue uh, that the king is coming, you're going to be his mother. He's going to be your son. You're going to give birth to David's heir. In fact, he's just not any king. You notice verse 33, 
His reign will not end. He says, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. There's, this should get you happy. When Jesus comes and reigns, there will be no new elections. Right? Right? No successors. All the kingdoms will end except the kingdom of God. Nothing can defeat him. Satan has been defeated. Death is behind him. Before him lies an unending future of glory and peace and joy with his people. The book of Revelation declares there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That kingdom's going forth right now. Throughout this world, it's advancing. In fact, Jesus taught us to pray, Father, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Let it go forth. Let it go forth in my life. Let me submit more fully to the authority of Jesus the King. Let it go forth outside amongst our neighbors and the nations. Colossians 1 said He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. You are in the kingdom. And whenever someone comes to Christ, they come into the kingdom. This is our job now, church, to announce there is a King upon His throne and He has a kingdom on this earth and you can come into that kingdom if you will bow your knee and swear allegiance to King Jesus. I tell you, today on November 23rd, 2014, King Jesus is alive and He is ruling and He invites all men and all women to lay down their arms of rebellion and come and enjoy His kingdom. To come. Yes, hallelujah. He said, come you who are thirsty. Come to the water of life and buy without price. I am the bright morning star. I am the son of David. I am the root of David. And I offer salvation to all who would come to this King. He is a King that invites people to Him. And the angel says, Mary, your, your son is not just the king. He is the eternal king. We see also he is the son of God. You see that in verse uh, 35. And the angels answered her, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. He's not just Mary's son. He's just not the Davidic son. He is God's son. This is affirmed throughout Scripture. The devil will affirm it. The apostles will affirm it. Jesus will declare it. The Father in heaven will announce it at his baptism, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Therefore, Jesus is no prophet or no good teacher or moral example. He is the very Son of God. In fact, we saw that in verse 32. The angel already mentioned he's the Son of the Most High. El Elyon, God Most High. This is a reference to who God is in, in, in describing his power. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus will encounter a demon and he'll say to him, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I beseech you, do not torment me. In other words, as the Son of God, he has great and unimaginable power. Mary, your Son, will be the Son of God, the Son of the Most High God. He is also the Holy One. Verse 35, the angel says, He will be called Holy I don't know if you create a list of what's important for a king to you, what's important for a ruler, but most likely holiness does not make many people's list. 
Well, it makes God's list. It's on the top of his list that Jesus would be fully devoted to him, that he would lay down his will, even his life in obedience to the Father and obedience to his God. This is who he is. Now, this is a lot to take in. Right? In fact, I could count no less than six predictions here, even from verses 31 through 33. Right, Mary, you're going to conceive a son. You're going to name him Jesus. He's going to be great. He'll be the son of the Most High. He'll sit on the throne of King David, and he will reign forever. These six rapid-fire, centuries-old prophecies that begin with Mary's pregnancy and end with the eternal state in the new earth and the new heaven. Gabriel just kind of backs up the theological truck and just dumps it on Mary. Right? He's just these six rapid-fire predictions. And I'm not sure how much Mary actually hears. I think she's just stuck on number one. I'm sorry, did you say I'm going to have a baby? (laughs) You are Mary. And in having a baby, we will lastly see the might of Jesus. Notice what she says in verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be? Since I am a virgin. I don't understand. How can I have a child? You see, Mary's struggling here a little bit, isn't she? Remember, Zachariah struggled, didn't he? The angel appeared to Zachariah and said, Zachariah, you're going to have a son. Zachariah says, wait a second, how can this be? I'm old. We're old. And the angel says, well, yeah, just for that, buddy, you're going to be mute for nine months. Right? And so the angel shows up to Mary and says, Mary, you're going to have a son. She says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And he says to her, well, Mary, let me explain it to you. Right? Would you like more information, Mary? I can just unfold this to you. And we're left wondering, what, does Zachariah get the grumpy angel and, and Mary get the patient angel? Right? Well, it's the same angel, so we've got to throw that out. We have this idea today that um, in, in tradition, traditional religious circles, that, that doubt is bad. That, that any type of doubt is bad. And, and, and people will say, you know, I, I love Jesus, but I, I have questions about the Bible. And, and we want to respond, don't doubt! Right? If I could, I would strike you mute. And this is this idea that doubt is, is bad. But I think the Bible's presenting that there's different kinds of doubt, isn't there? There's this doubt that's closed mind that doesn't really want answers. It just sets up doubt to reject the truth. And then there's a doubt that truly does want answers. It's open to the truth. Mary asks this question, I think, unlike Zachariah, because she really wants to know. I don't understand. How can this happen? It's okay to have doubts. Don't you understand that? I believe in Jesus. I believe He died and rose from the dead. I believe He's coming again. But there's places you might struggle with. You say, I, I don't know about this, Pastor. I, I struggle with this. It's okay. As long as you're coming with an open mind, seeking after truth. In fact, I'm glad that Mary had a little bit of doubt. Without it, we would never have got verse 37. And nothing is impossible with God. What a great promise the angel gives. And so Mary says, I'm a virgin. How am I going to have a child? I'm not married. I have no husband. And the angel replies, oh, Mary, this child doesn't require a husband. As we see in verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you just like he came upon creation. The Bible says the Spirit hovered over the face of the dirt, uh, of the deep. Now the Holy Spirit's going to come and, and going to create in Mary's womb the, that Jesus with the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, would become a man. This is what we call the incarnation. Incarn. 
incarnate. Carne is Latin for flesh. So Jesus has come in the flesh. This is a foundational truth in Christianity that the Holy Spirit creates Jesus in the womb and Mary conceives Jesus in the womb. And that Jesus, therefore, is eternally God and yet now and forever fully human. And we need both. We need Him to be God in order to perfectly obey God's law in our place. We need Him to be human to die as our substitute in our place. And Jesus, therefore, is the Savior because He's both God and man through the miracle of the virgin birth. This is why He must be born of a virgin. He has a divine Father, not a biological human Father. I want you to see this in verse 35. It says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Note that next word. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Holy Spirit's going to come and create in your womb. Therefore, He's the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God precisely because Joseph was not His Father, but God is His Father. The reason I emphasize this is this doctrine is under attack today. In fact, I don't know if you are aware how much it's under attack, but the latest research I could find was in 1998... You know, 1998, amongst pastors, not just Christians, but pastors, 34% of American Baptist pastors will deny the virgin birth. One out of three. 44% of Episcopalian pastors deny the virgin birth. 49% of Presbyterian pastors, one out of two, will reject the virgin birth. 60% of Methodist pastors, three out of five, would reject the virgin birth. Now, I understand denying the miracles in the Bible makes this book easier to believe. But is it worth believing then? Is it worth giving your life to, to study and understand? In fact, when you deny the virgin birth, you know what you do? Well, you say, one, Mary's loose. She's immoral. Two, you say, Luke's a liar. Three, you say, Scripture's untrue. And four, you say, Jesus is just another man like you and I. I praise the Lord that Scripture is not determined by majority vote. As the Bible says, let every man be a liar and God be true. Mary, God's going to create in your womb as a virgin. And then in this great comfort, he says to her in verse 36, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. I don't know if that's... Elizabeth's nickname. The angel says she's called barren. Um, and, and this is, she's known to be barren, isn't she? And she's, the angel says, I want you to see the sovereignty of God over the womb. See what God can do. Your, your cousin, your aunt, Aunt Elizabeth, she is, has a child now. She's in her sixth month. Go and see her if you want to see how God can do these wonderful and incredible things. For, verse 37, nothing is impossible with God. Now, when Gabriel says nothing is impossible with God in verse 37, he's not simply quoting Scripture, though there's plenty of Scriptures we can quote. But Gabriel's actually witnessed this. I mean, Gabriel watched God create the physical world out of nothing. He, he watched God in amazing colors put together billions of galaxies. 
He watched God fill the earth with vast and amazing animals and then craft man out of dust and a woman out of a bone. He, he watched manna fall from the sky and the water part. He watched lions' mouths muzzled and fiery furnaces cooled. He, he watched God take the life of the firstborn of Egypt and give life into barren wombs. He watched God send a chariot of fire from heaven to take home His servant and then send fire down from heaven to destroy those who refused to repent. He watched a whale swallow a prophet and a nation turn to God. So Gabriel, perhaps above all people, knows this to be true. Nothing is impossible for God. In fact, Gabriel hasn't seen anything yet because God, who's going to, who created all things, is going to enter creation without ceasing to be the uncreated God. He's going to live a perfect life and then his creation is going to reject him, kill him, and then three days later rise from the dead that he might offer forgiveness to all who would come to him, that he might work in, in everyone's life who would turn to him. And so he says to Mary, understand this. He says to us today, Hamilton Baptist Church, understand this. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. This is why I think we ought to sing with joy. This is why we ought to pray with confidence. Because our God is the God of the impossible. So I ask you, what in your life seems to be impossible? What seems to be out of reach? Your family too divided? The financial... Or physical needs too great? The suffering or sadness too overwhelming? The sin too much to forgive? Nothing is impossible with God. There is no sin He cannot forgive. No relationship He cannot reconcile. No problems He cannot resolve. No need He cannot meet. No ministry He cannot bless. No grief He cannot comfort. No life He cannot reclaim. And no sinner He cannot save. The God of the virgin birth is the God of the impossible. There is nothing He cannot do. Nothing is impossible for Him. And Mary hears this. I think this is finally sinking into her. Though I'm sure she has lots of questions. But in verse 38, she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Okay, I'm in. I'll do it. I'm not sure she had a choice. I'm not sure the angel was asking her. But she's in. Now understand, this is no simple uh, submission. There's cost here. Right? Because back then, people could count. They had calendars. Right? And they knew that that Mary got pregnant outside of wedlock. They would assume that she betrayed her fiancé, that she's a loose girl. And what is she going to say? Well, there was this angel and then the baby, and he happens to be the Son of God. I I mean, she can't say anything. In fact, she never outlived these accusations. In John chapter 4, even the Pharisees said of Jesus, we were not born of sexual immorality. As if Jesus was. The Jewish Talmud would say that she was impregnated by a Roman soldier named Penthera. The rest of her life is marginalized and disgraced. This woman who, who wanted to give herself to chastity is assumed to be unchaste. And yet she says, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. And you think about not just her reputation, but the relationships that were, uh, were going to be ruptured. I mean, what's going to happen when she shows up pregnant with Joseph? Well, we know what's going to happen. According to Matthew, he's going to try to divorce her. And so she understands by saying, yes, I'm going to be a single mom in a traditional religious culture. With, with How am I going to provide for myself? What's her father going to say? What kind of shame will this bring upon her parents in this small town? Her friends may shun her. Her parents may disown her. Joseph may leave her. And yet she says, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. 
which is not even taken into account the future hardships, the journey to Bethlehem, the exile into Egypt, the hatred of Herod, watching your son be arrested and tried and crucified. I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. I mean, this angel shows up and says, you're going to have the Son of God, and that's about it. You figure the rest out. Just stopping by to let you know. Right? That's a lot to take in. That's a lot for a 13-year-old girl to have dropped on her. And yet she says, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to God's word. I don't know if, that, if you were in that situation. If I were in something similar, I might ask for something a little easier. I at least might ask him to go speak to my father. And he didn't get any of this. All she needed to know was that this was what God's wanted. That was enough for her. You know how rare this is in Scripture, that submission without hesitation to God's plan? The great hero Moses said, send someone else. The great judge Gideon says, my family's too small. The great prophet Jeremiah said, I'm too young. Mary says, you just do what you want, God. I'm your servant. I'm going to leave the rest to you. You want to know the magnificence of Mary? It's verse 38. Mary is not the object of our faith. She is an example of faith. She's an example to us, isn't she? She's an example to all you, you, you mothers who live in a culture that says if you want to accomplish something, you've got to get out of the home and do something important to make a difference. Mary says, you know what? I'm going to stay home and just raise my boys. One happens to be the Son of God. Another is going to write a book of the Bible named Jude. Another will write another book of the Bible named James. He'll be the pastor of the missionary sending church of the ancient world, Jerusalem. Right? She, I think she had an impact. I think not only an example to mothers, but she's not an example to young women, to teenagers. Do you see her faith? Do you see her own love for God? Do you see she don't run to her parents to try to figure this out? She's dealing with this on her own. She's been brought up to know God. Do you see her purity in which we live in a day in which it's just almost assumed you're not going to remain pure? No one does. It's impossible to happen. And Mary says, well, it's not going to be for me. I'm going to follow God. I'm going to be pure and chaste. Now, not everyone in God's lineage has, right? We know Tamar was a seductress, and, and Rahab a prostitute, Bathsheba an adulteress, all in the lineage of Jesus. And we praise the Lord, there is forgiveness, isn't there, that covers all these sins. And yet Mary is following God before the angel shows up. I don't think those are coincidental. She's ready to follow Him no matter what the cost. I am the Lord's servant. In fact, when I read this story, I'm reminded of Abram. Remember when God says, Abram, I'm going to bless the world through you. And Abraham says, okay, that sounds good. And he's, what should I do? He says, I want you to leave everything. I want you to leave all you know. I want to leave your town. I want you just to, to get out of town and leave everything forever. He says, okay, I'll do it. Where am I going? And God says, I'll tell you when you get there. We don't need to worry about that now. You just head out into the wilderness. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, he went out not knowing where he was going. Is that not the same for Mary? She goes out not knowing where she was going. God says, obey me and submit to me. And she just says, okay, I will do it. I want you to understand that this is not just for Mary. This is the, what all Christians are called to. We will obey God. We will submit to God. So often we have a plan for our life and we kind of plan it out. This is what it's going to look like. And then we say, okay, God, your job is to come and bless it. Your job is to come and make sure that it happens, that there are no hiccups in that plan, that everything gets accomplished just like I wrote it. Well, what if God comes and says, I'm writing a new script for you. You know, Mary's plan was a wedding dress without a baby bump, right? And Mary's plan was to marry Joseph, have babies, and to be a good person and follow Jesus. And the angel shows up and says, I have a new plan for you. 
for you. And she says, okay, whatever God wants for me. He gets to write the script for my life. He's in charge. I love him. I'm his servant. This is what it means to be a Christian. I submit to Jesus. You put me where you want, when you want, how you want, doing what you want, whether that's sickness or health, rich or poor, single or married, barren or fertile, failure or success. I am your servant and I trust my God who has died on the cross for me. This is a call for a Christian to surrender the life, to give up control. I wonder if that is you. I wonder if there's something you're holding back from God. I wonder if you can say to God with all of your life, I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Maybe you can't say that because you don't know him. You don't know him. You're not his servant in any sense of the word. You understand that the Holy Spirit who came upon Mary and created life in her would come upon you today and create life in you. You, who the Bible says are dead in your trespasses and sin, will cause you to be born again. That you might know this God. This God who will forgive all of your sins. The Bible tells us if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can do that today. You can know God today. Father in heaven, we thank you for our Savior Jesus. We thank you for our King Jesus, the Holy One, the Son of God. We delight in him. We rejoice that he has come for us. We thank you, Lord Jesus that you come for the lowly and the downcast and the marginalized. And we thank you come for sinners like us. Help us to live faithfully as your servants. Help us to be so overwhelmed by the work that you have done in our life that we would go forth even now and want to proclaim who Christ is. Maybe we have opportunities this Thanksgiving dinner to tell people who Christ is to us. Will you help us to be bold for your kingdom? We thank you for who you are. We pray that you would do a work in our lives and in our church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.